there has never been a case like like ours in in that a non-human animal has asked being with with the capacity to have rights as a legal person and then demanding a right. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from a very sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. Bob? And this is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from uh, just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and also a blog called Media Law. Bob, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio, an online practice management software program for attorneys at goclio.com. Today, we're going to be talking about the legal rights that we enjoy as humans and considering whether they should be extended to animals in, in some way, shape, or form. Sometime in the next couple of months, an animal advocacy group called the Non-Human Rights Project will file, is planning to file a habeas corpus action on behalf of a chimpanzee, asking a state court somewhere in the United States to, to grant the chimp, now living in captivity, its liberty. Other suits may follow, all with the goal of having animals declared legal persons capable of possessing legal rights. On the side of the animal rights activists, the, the argument can be made that many animals, including apes, dolphins, and elephants, are, are far more intelligent and emotionally complex than, than was long believed. And, and for that reason, they deserve to be treated as people, not things in the eyes of the law. But on the flip side, uh, some medical researchers, psychologists, and, and others strongly oppose that idea, saying that the animals cannot defend themselves express themselves, take responsibility for their actions, or contribute to human culture. For these reasons, they argue animals are unfit to be granted rights. And today we're going to speak with the lead lawyer in the operation, Steve Wise. He is the president of the Non-Human Rights Project. He's been practicing animal protection law nationwide for 30 years and is admitted to practice in the Massachusetts State Bar. He teaches many courses in animal law and has published four books on the matter, including Rattling the Cage Toward Legal Rights for Animals. He frequently travels the world lecturing on animal rights and the non-human rights project and has guested on many programs talking about animals and the law. Welcome to our program, Steve Wise. Thank you very much for inviting me. And we might want to just say right at the outset that we uh, attempted to get... (laughs) The other side to, to be on this show as well, to get somebody who could uh, represent some of the arguments posing Steve's position on this, uh, but we were not successful in doing that. So we're, we're thrilled to have Steve on the show. Uh, I was telling him before we started that, that I read one of his first books many years ago and, and certainly followed the work he's been doing over the years. But Steve, I, your, your most recent uh, activity is that you've been talking about bringing habeas corpus action on behalf of a chimpanzee. Your organization wants to establish legal personhood for animals, at least for certain animals. Uh, talk about what that means. What Are you talking about giving animals all the same rights that we as people presently have? Well, what we're talking about is first you have to assume that, which I think is true, that there's this line that, that exists in the law. One side of it are all 
all human beings, but only human beings. So all human beings are currently, in 2013, seen as legal persons in that they have the capacity to have one or, or more rights, usually a large number of rights. On the other side of this line or this wall uh, is all the rest of the animal kingdom. No non-human animal is seen as having uh, legal personhood or the capacity to have any legal right at all. And they are seen then as legal things, and legal things in the law are seen as existing for the sake of legal persons. So it means that we humans, or legal persons, essentially can exploit and do exploit non-human animals, uh, and they have, uh, they have virtually no, well, they have no legal rights that, that can uh, stand in the way of what we're doing uh, to them or what we want to do to them and, and them. So in our, in our first case, uh, we are trying to, uh, to choose a plaintiff or petitioner, and that will be a chimpanzee, and argue to, to our state uh, court that um, under the common law, our chimpanzee uh, should be a legal person and that in that she should be declared or recognized as having the capacity to be a rights bearer, kind of a legal container. She should be recognized as being a legal container uh, in which uh, a court or a legislature can then pour or drip rights in as they, as, as they uh, see fit and as justice uh, requires, and that, uh, that she should have a specific right, which is uh, the, the fundamental right to bodily liberty, which we can vindicate by filing a common law writ of habeas corpus. The judge should then recognize she has, a, she has legal personhood, she has the capacity for rights, she has a fundamental right, the right to bodily liberty, and that we will ask uh, to have her transferred uh, to a sanctuary for chimpanzees. That, that, that seems, I mean, forgive me here, but it seems kind of um, a self-defeating argument. On the one hand, she deserves to have liberty, but on the other hand, you're going to put in her in a cage. Oh, no, we're not putting her in a cage. We would like to put her uh, in, in back, back in the wild, but uh, she's probably never been in the wild. And uh, the, the few times in which a chimpanzee has uh, been placed back in the wild, they generally die. So we don't want to bring her to Africa and, and, and have her die. We have been working uh, with a sanctuary that, uh, that does not have any cages at all. And uh, it's a, a sanctuary in Florida in which there are, there are islands uh, on an artificial lake and the chimpanzees actually live in kind of quasi-family groups on, on these islands, much as they would uh, as if they were in the wild. It's the closest that we're able to come uh, in this first case to uh, replicating uh, the wild. Now, we may at, at another time, and we indeed have looked into this, bring suit on, beh- on behalf of, say, an orca or a dolphin, uh, both of which are extraordinarily cognitively complicated animals, uh, easily on, on the level of a of a uh, chimpanzee, and if that orca was fairly, or 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 uh, dolphin or whale was fairly recently captured, we might then be able to bring her uh, right back into the wild, or we might be able to bring her into into a sea pen where she could be rehabilitated and placed into the wild. It's more likely that we'd be able to return an orca to the wild than we'd be able, at least at this point, be able to uh, bring a chimpanzee into the African wild. Does your advocacy include restoring animals to the wild from a zoo? Well, any, anywhere in which they're, they are being uh, held captive, and it seems to be against their interests. Uh, if, if, they can, if they can be brought into a, in, in, into a place, if a chimpanzee can be brought into a sanctuary, 
in which uh, she'd be living with other chimpanzees. She'd be doing things that are natural to chimpanzees. Uh, and she'd be able to live a chimpanzee life, then we would be asking the court to recognize her right to bodily liberty and allow her to leave uh, that uh, cage where she is and be brought to the uh, to this uh, sort of a sanctuary. Steve, you did in fact bring a, a lawsuit many years ago on behalf of, I think it was an orca. I, I, I don't it was a dolphin. I sued the, the New England judge, Aquarium. A dolphin, okay. The, 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 the judge made short, short shrift of, I guess, uh, what, what's different this time around? Uh, I mean, the judge uh, threw your case out uh, uh, pretty quickly, as I recall, uh, the yes. first time around. What, yes, what's different uh, that was in 1992. I brought a federal case uh, uh, involving uh, uh, two cats. I brought two of them. One was um, Rainbow versus the New England Aquarium, where I sought to prevent the transfer of Rainbow to the United States Navy uh, under the um, Marine Mammal Protection Act. We actually settled that that case, and Rainbow, indeed, was not transferred. The second case I filed was a a dolphin named Kama, K-A-M-A, against the New England Aquarium, in which I was dismissed on grounds of standing. All I can say is, in 1992, I was much more, I was younger and much more foolish and ignorant than I am now, and that uh, (laughs) 20 years later, I realized, oh, I should never have brought that that sort of a suit in, in that way. And so, one difference is now, is that uh, we would not bring a suit in federal court. Uh, we would not bring a suit uh, relying upon a, a statute that has to be interpreted. We we would bring a, a which we are, we're, going, we're bringing uh, cases in a state court under the common law so that a, a court is not interpreting uh, a constitution or a treaty or a statute, but is actually uh, using the common law. And, ju- and the common law is, by definition, judge-made. And so if we can persuade the judge that that she should uh, rule in our favor under the common law, then she certainly um, has the uh, power to do so. We're bringing um, in our suit this time many, many um, affidavits from scientists that, uh, that will demonstrate uh, the whole range of cognitive abilities uh, that, a, that our non-human animal, our chimpanzee, has, including an affidavit by uh, Jane Goodall, who, is, uh, who knows an awful lot about chimpanzees, and and is indeed one of the members of the board of directors of the Non-Human Rights Project. And we'd be seeking um, you know, different kinds of relief. I think it's important that we're bringing a common law writ of habeas corpus as opposed to seeking relief under a, a federal statute in which you have to show that there was an intent on, on behalf of Congress that, that our um, dolphin be uh, included within the definition of person, for example, where, where, you, where you don't have that in a common lawsuit uh, on behalf of, a, of any kind of an animal in which you're, you're asking them to, uh, to use a common law standard and, and, uh, and act as a common law judge rather than a federal judge, which who usually does not act as a common law judge. Well, one of your books was entitled uh, Drawing the Line. And you know, where, where do you draw the line in terms of the legal rights that could be extended to uh, to to non-human animals. I, it, 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 you're talking, I guess, in a writ of habeas corpus about a, a right to, to liberty uh, of some kind. But but what other rights? You know, once you extend one right, uh, does that open the door to other types of rights? Well, that that's the beauty of the common law is that uh, we we intend to bring our first case demanding that our chimpanzee petitioner. Uh, be recognized as a legal person with the capacity to have a legal right, or at least at least one. The legal right that we'd like to have a judge recognize is the right to bodily liberty. 
Uh, at that point, uh, it does open the door for being able to bring further lawsuits to to look at the rights one by one to see which rights might be appropriate for our chimpanzee petitioner. Or you might file suit on behalf of other chimpanzees or other uh, extremely cognitively complicated animals like, like a uh, cetacean, a dolphin, and a whale, an orca, or, or an elephant, which are also extraordinary, extraordinarily complicated creatures, an Asian elephant, an African elephant, and, and bring the, a different question before the court. The question that a that a, a court has now is if there, if someone's claiming that a a petitioner a plaintiff has a legal right, they just look to see what the species is. And if you're a if you're a human being, then you have the possibility of being able to have that right. If you're not a human being, then you're seen as a legal thing, and your case would automatically be thrown out. Uh, once we've uh, crossed that that uh, species line, and a judge will recognize that it is at least possible for a non-human animal of some kind, a chimpanzee, an orca, who knows, to be a legal person with the capacity to have a right. At that point, you look at the nature of the plaintiff, whether she's a chimpanzee or whether she's a uh, whale, and you determine you know, in, in court whether uh, the cognitive abilities or other abilities of that non-human animal uh, would require as a matter of justice that, uh, that she have some other right. And that would be done that would work the way the common law always works, which is on a kind of case-by-case basis. So you're not advocating that we start releasing uh, animals that we use for food? No, we're, we're not uh, focusing on any of the animals that we're, that we're using for food. Our, our, certainly our first years of cases, uh, our first 10 years of cases, will be focusing on uh, such cognitively complicated animals that have been, who have been studied uh, thoroughly by scientists from all over the world. And they're essentially the uh, four species of great apes, uh, the, the species of cetaceans, dolphins, whales, um, species of elephants, and possibly some um, extraordinarily complicated birds, for example, like an African gray parrot, uh, uh, who also has been the subject of, a, of, a, of an immense amount of scientific research and who has been shown to have uh, you know, very, very um, cognitively complicated, um, or, or to be very uh, cognitively complicated. Well, Steve, we need to take a break. And before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear from a message from our sponsor. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud? And is it a difficult process? No, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in less than, in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams with my co-host, Robin Ambrosi. Well, Steve, it certainly sounds like you've got a long-term plan. Um, 
Have you had any successes so far? Is there anything in the law that you can point to that's, that will tell a judge, here's the authority to, to do what we're asking you to do? Well, first of all, indeed, we do have a, long plan, a long-term plan. Um, I have been uh, working to prepare this case for 28 years. I began in 1985, uh, and uh, it took me many years to, uh, to research this. I began to write a series of law review articles. I then wrote a series of books. In the meantime, uh, beginning in 1990, I began teaching at the uh, Animal Rights Law at the Vermont Law School. In 2000, I was the first person to teach Animal Rights Law at the Harvard Law School. Uh, right now, I'm teaching at the Lewis and Clark Law School in Oregon. I teach at St. Thomas and sometimes at the University of Miami. In Miami, I teach at the Autonomous University in Barcelona. And, and it, the time really was not right. There was very little known. When I taught at the Vermont Law School in 1990, I was only the second, uh, second such class. Now, there's more than 140 law schools in the United States have some variant of an animal law or an animal rights class. So, indeed, it has been a long time, almost three decades, in getting us to this point, and we indeed do have a plan that will take us through another 10 years or 20 years or 30 years when I you know, turn it over to my uh, children there and grandchildren. Uh, now, the, there, are, there has never been a case like, like ours in, in that a non-human animal has asked to be recognized as a, as a um, being with, with the capacity to have rights as a legal person and then demanding a right. But there have been cases uh, in, in, in which a legal thing has demanded that, that the judge no longer categorize her as a legal thing but be a legal person. And, and indeed, when there, were, when there were slaves in, the, in, in, in England, in the United States, uh, that happened many times, and we in the Non-Human Rights Project have become uh, immersed and quite conversant with, um, with the um, litigation involving human slaves in the United States, in the antebellum South and the antebellum North, as well as in England, to the extent that the third book I wrote, which is called Though the Heavens May Fall, was a telling of the story of uh, the, the slave trial of, uh, of James Somerset, who was a slave who had been captured in, East, in um, West Africa, had been brought to Virginia and ultimately to Boston was, was a slave for more than two decades when he was brought to London, where he escaped, and he was then uh, brought on board the Ann and Mary, a, sh- a ship in England, and was being, after he was re- recaptured, was being taken to Jamaica, where he was going to be sold in the slave markets. And then a common law writ of habeas corpus was brought on his behalf before Lord Mansfield, you know, the great English judge, uh, who was uh, chief judge of the, of the Court of King's Bench. and. There were uh, hearings in front of Lord Mansfield and the Court of King's Bench over, over the next six months, at which point Lord Mansfield freed James Somerset, said that slavery was so odious that only positive law would support it, not the common law, and essentially abolished slavery in England. And that case became extremely influential in, in the United States and uh, was even mentioned certainly by the dissenters in the Dred Scott case. And so there was... The Somerset case, which, by the way, has been incorporated into the common law of virtually all of the United States. It's within the United States. So we'll certainly be talking about that and many of the other dozens and dozens and dozens of slave cases uh, that came, came uh, before the courts before the Civil War, in which courts were confronted with human beings uh, who were legal things, who occupied the same legal status as does our chimpanzee. And uh, we think that the, uh, the sort of reasoning... Uh, that was applied there uh, is quite applicable to this to the uh, 
uh, sort of cases that, that we want to bring in, which we're trying to um, break through the species barrier the way they were trying to break through the, the, the human racial barrier. Steve, some of the critics of, of your work say that the, the problem with extending legal rights to non-humans is that a corollary to having legal rights is, is legal, legal duties, legal obligations that uh, uh, we're all expected to adhere to in a, in a society of laws. Uh, how, how does that play out in your thinking? I mean, if a, if a chimp has a, a right to liberty, uh, can, a, can a chimp also be prosecuted for criminal activity? Well, I, I think the answer is probably no and no. There are certain kinds of rights that have correlates of duties. Uh, if you look at the, the bane of my students' existence, which is the idea of Hofeldian rights, that uh, uh, a typical uh, or one kind of the four sorts of Hofeldian rights is, is called a claim right, which, ha- which correlates with a duty. And lawyers would, would, uh, would see this claim right, for example, in, in a contract. So, so you would have rights and duties. But there are other kinds of rights, liberty rights, uh, there are immunity rights, you know, fundamental immunity rights, for example, the right to bodily liberty or the right to bodily integrity in which there's no duty involved. You, you just are prohibited from, from violating someone's right to bodily liberty. There's no correlative duty or bodily integrity. There's no correlative duty. You simply have that as a fundamental right, and indeed the correlate is Others are disabled from violating your fundamental immunity right to bodily liberty or your fundamental immunity right to bodily integrity. So uh, they they simply they simply don't have to ha- they don't have duties. They they are in in that way I think quite similar to say human children where you can't violate their bodily integrity or their bodily liberty in 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 except in a way that might that might help them uh, and and they have no duties if. Uh, I think in one of my books, perhaps the one you have um, uh, drawn the line, I talk about a six-year-old boy who brought a gun to school in uh, Wisconsin or Minnesota, and he shot one of his classmates to death. I pointed out that you know he was not prosecuted, uh, he was not civilly sued, uh, he was seen as uh, as not being the kind of being who who was subject to to duties. He was just too young, and indeed a a chimpanzee or an orca. Uh, or other non-human animals uh, for whom we're trying to to get fundamental immunity rights, essentially, like bodily liberty or bodily integrity, uh, would have no correlative duties. And so what's the social policy behind this? I mean, it, it, it's difficult to imagine that we have enough of a problem right now trying to provide human rights to all the humans, um, and now we're going to try to do it with animals. It seems like we're taking on a little bit too much. Well, it's important first of all, to, to re- realize that we're not trying to get human rights for, for chimpanzee or a whale. We're trying to get chimpanzee rights for chimpanzees and whale rights for, for whales. Um, it, it certainly would, it would involve filing other cases. I'm sure legislatures would get involved. Uh, but uh, you could make that argument at any time. Anytime some, some other group comes in and says, uh, you know, we are entitled to rights, or some group who has rights says we're entitled to these other kinds of rights, or a federal or state statute passed that, that broadens rights, there's going to be more lawsuits. And uh, that's just how our system works. And uh, it's, it's not appropriate to deny access to courts or deny rights to, to those who should otherwise be entitled to them simply because you think that somehow their, their, their cases are going to clog up the courts and they're, and they're going to be more important than all the other cases, because I don't think that's true. What is the fundamental right that entitles animals to some type of, or the one or two rights that you're looking to give them? 
the the fundamental right that we're talking about, we're, we're actually talking about two of them. Uh, one is a is a, we we argue that uh, that a, that uh, our, our chimpanzee plaintiff ha- or petitioner has a fundamental right to bodily liberty, and uh, much of the writings that I've done over the last twenty five years uh, sets the groundwork for that, explains where that fundamental right comes from, and un- under the common law, uh, that's what Ravening the Cage was about. That's what Drawing the Line was about. Uh, that's what um, that's what uh, though the heavens may fall was about, where I was where I was showing where James Somerset was shown that he had he had a fundamental right not to be a slave, and it involved a huge amount of research into trying to understand where human fundamental rights came from, and then applying the same sorts of uh, analysis to a chimpanzee and saying, well, they come from you know very similar places. Steve, we've reached the point in our program where it's time to wrap up and get your final thoughts along with your contact information for our listeners. So if you'll do that for us, we'd appreciate it. Sure. The, well, the, the Non-Human Rights Project is, is, is uh, filing this uh, first uh, you know, piece of historic lit- litigation in, in the fall of 2013. Uh, we're hoping to win that first case and break through the species barrier and have a, an extraordinarily cognitively complex non-human animal such as our chimpanzee petitioner be seen as as a legal person. You know, we're we're hoping to win. If we don't, then we'll we'll sit back and reevaluate and think about what other kinds of lawsuits we could find, what other kinds of causes of action, what other kinds of petitioners we might be able to use. But but we we think the time has come, and we think the the scientific data is there uh, to be able to make uh, strong arguments. And and uh, we we expect that we will uh, begin prevailing as early as the fall or sometime in the coming years. My contact information, you can get in touch with me uh, through the Non-Human Rights Project. And uh, my email address is swise, S-W-I-S-D, at nonhumanrights.org. Great. Well, Steve, thank you very much for being on the program today. We certainly appreciate it. Steve, thanks a lot for joining us. We appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for asking some very perceptive questions. And now, Bob, we've come to the point in the show where you and I get to share our closing thoughts. Uh, it's a new addition to the program. We have 30 seconds to share our final thoughts before the buzzer goes off. So, Bob, on your mark, get set. You're it. Well, I think that the, I think the law needs to evolve between beyond the definition of persons and things, perhaps. I mean, animals are far more cognitive and emotionally complex than we'd long believe them to be, uh, and it doesn't make sense to classify them as things under the law entirely, I don't think. And, and I think the law needs to evolve and, and recognize that in some way. And I think I'm in under the buzzer. Probably so. Um, you know, I'm concerned about the slippery slope aspect of this. It seems to me... <laughs> there's your buzz. I think that's my yeah. buzzer. You go ahead. It seems to me that uh, once you start down this path, um, it opens up the door to a lot of questions that I don't know that we have the answers to or really ready or, or for that matter, need to explore. But um, I certainly have some sense that uh, there are animals that are out there that have uh, great cognitive abilities and we need to show them more respect. Um seems to me, Steve, that you'd probably have more success bringing an action on behalf of a dog because you'd probably get more emotional reaction from humans than uh, through a chimpanzee. But that's just me. <laughs> wow, right on the money. I'm taking notes. I'm taking notes. <laughs> Good. And that pretty much brings us to the end of our, our show. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer. 
produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.